Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, I'm going to read from Leviticus 19, and we'll talk. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn aside to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up into its edge. This is going to be helpful, right? Y'all are looking for instruction on that. Um, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. I know you're wondering, like, what do I do with the gleanings after my harvest? The Bible's being really helpful for you. Uh, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Okay, probably somebody in here might actually have a vineyard. So, there's a chance. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. This is the, we're going to get weird again. And you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two kinds of material. I told you we're going to do awkward parts of Leviticus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What are you doing? Okay, I'm still going to pray. Um, we thank you for your word. As we consider it, as we consider the holiness to which you call us to, I pray that you would teach us. We need your Holy Spirit to confirm to our hearts the truths of your scripture if we are going to be changed by them in any meaningful way. So be with us and teach us. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so I'm sure everybody's had this, has seen this happen before. Uh, maybe you've even been one of the people who's done something like this. I certainly did in college. But um, where you have a good friend start to date somebody. And at first you're really happy and they're really happy that they're dating somebody else. Um, and then you're a really good friend you start to see them a little bit less. So first they start talking about the boyfriend or girlfriend all the time uh, when you are with them. And then you're all stop, you're, you start to see them less and less. Um, they start spending more and more time together. They start planning like their spring break or their Christmas together. And then even kind of more frightening, they start to like plan life after college together. And you're like, okay, 
this person has kind of become everything. Nobody sees them anymore. They're together all the time. Uh, everything revolves around this relationship. We've seen this. Maybe some of us have done this, right? A relationship that dominates. It also doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic relationship. You can, we've seen it with people involved in a sports team, right? Maybe that's you. Uh, we've seen it involved with negative things like an addiction to things like appearances or an addiction to things like video games or even drugs, right? Where it becomes consuming and it starts affecting all of your other relationships and even determining your behavior in other relationships. Um, something that I've seen it happen to with students here is just with startups, right? There's like this exciting idea in this group of people. All of a sudden, class is less important. Social life is, so important, is less important. You involve yourself in all these things. Um, Actually, without any judgment on all of those things, I bring those up, and I hope you can imagine that scenario. Maybe you've seen it before. Because I actually think that scenario helps us get at the heart of what holiness is. And chapter 19 is the holiness chapter of Leviticus. That's the way it's often referred to. Because here's the way I want you to think about holiness, and that I think God really talks about holiness, if that this term is unfamiliar to you. Holiness is one thing living. Think about holiness as one thing living, having one thing that your life is centered on, and that that thing defines and prescribes actually how you relate to all the other things in your life. And your decisions in every other arena are made in reference to and in subjection to and in service to this one thing. Now, problems arise with that sometimes, right? The first problem that rises is actually, for most of us, what we're doing most of the time is we don't live a one-thing life. We live an 11 to 16-thing life, right? We have either anywhere from 11 to 16 things that are all commanding our time and attention, and we're not sure which one's most important, and we're negotiating all of the relationships between those anywhere from 11 to 16 things. Don't ask me how I came up with those numbers. It was a scientific process. It was a very complicated formula. But on average, it's somewhere between 11 and 16. Um, but you know this, like you're wrestling with the relationship between like ambition at school and following Jesus, and sometimes those things come into conflict, right? You're negotiating the relationship between developing a social life here and being successful professionally, and sometimes those things come into conflict, right? And you're not, wi- you're not sure all the time which one wins, which one's bigger. So that's one of the ways this problem arises. The other way this problem arises is we serve one thing, we become about one thing, but it's not the one thing worthy. And you can tell it's not the one thing worthy because it brings dysfunction into our lives. Right? So, a romance that costs us friendship. That's telling us something. That's a signal that maybe a romance, while good in other contexts and held in proper proportion, is really, really good. But when it becomes a one thing, it starts deteriorating other parts of our life. Right? So... We're either serving a lot of things and being really confused or serving the one thing that's not worthy. Holiness is the term for one thing living centered on God. Our relationship to God determines and defines and orients our relationship with everything else. This is what Moses is getting at and God is getting at when he says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And, and to talk about those brief passages, verse 19 at the very end, about mixing cattle breeds, mixing your field, and mixing two kinds of material. Um, Considering holiness actually helps us negotiate the relationships between the weird verses in Leviticus and and sometimes what feel like the clear verses in Leviticus. Because a common injection either you felt or maybe you've heard is, 
Okay, Leviticus, this is the chapter in Leviticus that says love your neighbors yourself. Jesus and Paul quote this chapter, right? But literally, right after the verse of love your, ta- no, love your neighbor and love yourself, uh, as you love yourself, he tells us, and also don't mix your crops and don't mix cattle and don't mix fabric. Now, I can't go, I'm not going to go a lot into that tonight, but I hope if you've been here this quarter, um, this might not, this is actually not as confusing as we initially think. Because what we find in Leviticus in the Old Testament, and this has been a constant conversation going through the book of Leviticus, is there are enduring moral commands. They, God's people were called to live a certain way in the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus and New Testament writers reaffirm those moral commands, like love your neighbor, right? We hear Jesus quote that. But then also, alongside of those things, the whole time in Leviticus and often often Deuteronomy, there are ritual or symbolic rules that we see Jesus and Paul explain as being matured into a new expression. Here's what I mean. In Ephesians 2, Paul actually refers specifically to these commands as dividing walls. By When the Israelites observed these, these rules about sowing field, and mixing cattle and two kinds of, uh, of fabric. He actually is referring to those as dividing walls. He's saying God put them in place so that Israel and the world around them would see that the God of Israel wants His people to understand that holiness is a oneness thing. And this was a symbolic way of representing oneness. Of like, I want you to be one to me. And one of the ways I want you to constantly think about that is in these symbolic expressions of your life. So that you think, we're not going to blend shirts. Why? Because one shirt should be one fabric. But really that's telling us that all of me should be all of God's. And actually, what Paul says in Ephesians 2, is he says, with these symbols and deeper reality, Paul says, when Jesus came, these symbolic Dividing walls are taken down because Jesus is what makes God's people one in himself. And so now you don't look to simple teaching tools or symbols that present this idea of oneness that you'll think on it. You look to Jesus. And he's the one that makes us one with God and one with each other. And my point in saying all of that is that there's a biblical pattern of signs being given that pass away when the living thing that those signs were pointing to, right? That's what signs do. They point to a reality. When the reality comes, you no longer need the sign. And that's what's happening here. But also at the same time, what we have here, is we see that they're enduring moral and ethical structure to God's world that He at all times and in all places calls us to. And that's what the rest of the earlier verses in Leviticus 19 are talking about. So we're going to go through those. What does... Holiness look like? What does one thing living look like? And the word holiness may have conjured some idea about maybe holiness, you think that word's weird. It's about, it's an internal kind of private sense of purity and piety. I hope what you saw very clearly in this chapter is that that idea about holiness has very little connection with what the Bible envisions as holiness, that holiness is deeply social. Right, One thing living, and that thing being God, doesn't actually pull us away from the world. Rather, it completely rewires how we go out into the world. And the word that Leviticus 19 uses to summarize as holy living in the world is love. Holiness doesn't pull you away from the world. Rather, it pushes us into the world with love 
as our guiding principle. This is what Jesus says in John 15. The world will know you are my followers by the way you love one another. So the distinctive and compelling mark of a Christ-centered community, of Christ-centered people, will be a profound and practical expression of Christ-shaped love, love that looks like His. Because this is the thing about one thing living. Whatever you center your life on, that's the thing that begins to shape you. Its values, its feelings, its lifestyle become your values and your feelings and your lifestyle. If you know a CrossFitter, you've seen this. Remember when your friend who does CrossFit was a normal person? (laughs) And now they do CrossFit and now it orients their entire life and they care about these things that you don't care about and no normal people care about, like how much they can clean and jerk or what their friend time is. And if those words are weird to you, that's because... (laughs) Or if you're paleo, exactly. If those words are weird to you, it's because CrossFitters are weird. They're weird because they've been conformed by the thing they care about, right? They care about a whole new set of things. They have a whole new set of values, a whole new set of behaviors. Y'all go with me on the CrossFit illustration because it's perfect, okay? (laughs) But the point being, actually the more important is, as God is your one thing, your heart begins to be shaped like His heart. That's my point. So what does he begin to speak to? Let's talk about some of the things that he begins to speak to. We're going to start in verse 9, actually. Verse 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge or gather the gleanings from your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, but rather leave grapes in your vineyard. You'll leave them for the poor and the sojourner. The first thing he starts talking about is generosity. Their most valuable assets, agrarian culture, is their land, right? And what he says is, hey, build into your life, build into the things that are valuable to you, a margin of casual generosity, such that it's regular for you. You always leave some stuff free for other people. You don't even collect it, you don't even think of it as yours. And who is it free for? Poor people who need it, and maybe just people traveling through. What qualifies them to receive it? Just being there. Holiness means a deliberate lifestyle of holding on to our things loosely, always willing to let go quickly for those in need. That you intentionally prepare margin in your lifestyle for those in need. Now, besides wealth and material things, I actually think the more appropriate thing for us to talk about is what is our most valuable asset? Because for them, when they hear feels, they're like, oh, that's scary. That's kind of everything for me. What's your most valuable asset? It's time. Oh, margins of time to give to people freely? That's terrifying at Stanford, isn't it? It is. Do you have time to give to people who need it? For their sake, not for yours. Like, give it because they need it, not because you can advance something about your life that you want to advance. Or is your time so consumed with individual pursuit that you don't have margins for engaging people for their sake? That's the kind of holiness that begins to mark God's people. So he addresses how we spend our most valuable asset. He addresses how we use our words. 11 and 12 is interesting. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Um, 
he links stealing and lying here, which is interesting. He connects the command about stealing with all these other commands about the way we use our words. And the reason why is because they both deal falsely with people. Part of what he's telling us is love means truth-telling. That God's people will be marked by their honesty. And I think truth-telling may be one of the most countercultural things actually in this passage. We think truth, that's good. But actually when we examine our day and we examine our interactions, aren't we all catering our message all the time to benefit ourselves, not to aim for the truth, but to curate half-lies for social advantage, professional advantage, for appearances, and all that kind of stuff? I actually think the truth is one of the things we're very afraid of. And what dealing falsely does to us is it separates us. One of the reasons we feel lonely and disconnected is because we're not truth-tellers. Because if you and I are going to hang out, and I'm going to misrepresent myself a little bit, and you're going to misrepresent yourself a little bit, if both of us know that we don't always tell the truth, are we friends? Is the thing that we're doing socially friendship? No. We don't know each other. If you don't know each other, you don't trust each other, you're not friends. doesn't mean you don't socially interact and engage time together and even talk together and hang out together. But I can tell you this, if you don't know each other because you're not telling the truth and you can't trust each other because you're not telling the truth, you're not experiencing real friendship. I think that's one of the reasons why we're actually around the people a lot but feel alone a lot. It's because truth is absent in our relationships. And truth is hard at times. Sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we're telling the truth to others about themselves. That's a risk. Sometimes we're telling the truth to others about ourselves. That's a risk, right? It's scary. But y'all, awkwardness is the chief ingredient of real friendship. And one of the reasons we we feel lonely is because we're so afraid of being awkward. He talks about our most valuable assets. He talks about our words and dealing truthfully versus false with one another. Um, And then 13 and 14 are interesting. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. It's interesting because he starts off with love means that you don't oppress. And then here's how he gives a vision of oppression is you don't give to people what you owe them. And in specifically, he, he, he engages a relationship where there's a power dynamic. So this is an agrarian culture again. Most of the farms were worked by day laborers. So he addresses a farmer who employs day laborers who are committed to working for one day and they've agreed upon a wage. Power dynamic here, right? Someone in power, someone out of power. And he's saying, how are you using your power? Are you giving the people that are vulnerable what is due them? Are you honoring them? Are you treating them with dignity? Are you keeping the commitments that you've made? Verse 14 is interesting. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. I actually think this is maybe the mo- one of the more challenging verses in here. Because here's the thing. A deaf person can't hear you curse them. And a blind person can't see you put a stumbling block in front of them. Love is actually seeking people's well-being when they don't know when there's no benefit to you or praise for us, and especially for those who need it and can't even appreciate you for it. I mean, this, Jesus talks about this in terms of giving, that giving is to be done anonymously because anything we do good and need to be known for, guess who we did it for? We did it for ourselves. Right? 
Verse 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against life against... Uh, against the life of your neighbor. He addresses conflict here. What does holiness look like when we're in conflict with one another? Right? A a judicial situation where something has to be decided because people are in conflict. Um, It says love precludes judging people according to their class, according to their social status, according to their race, even according to proximity. Friends who make agreeing with them a requisite for friendship. Guess what? Somebody's not right just because they're our friend. We're not right. And we can, we're not allowed, when we're not right, we're not allowed to make our friends support us when we're not right. Love is actually being an impartial listener. How often, how easy is it to jump on a bandwagon against an individual without ever hearing their side? This is actually why verse 16 is a part of it. It prohibits slander. What slander does is in conflict, slander creates unfairness. It conditions others to think about someone before they've had a chance to speak about themselves without giving them the chance to be heard. Love requires wisdom and honest impartiality. It allows people to speak and be heard before there's judgment. That's hard. I don't know if y'all have been on social media. We're not really doing great on that as a country right now, right? That was like kind of mean funny. Sorry. Um, dealing with myself. Uh, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. The Bible never lets us get away with deal- not dealing with the heart. Because here's the reality. As we can act nice, we can act generous, we can act kind, we can act wise, we can even act patient, right? On the outside. But here, this is the kill shot. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Is what you're doing on the outside matched by what's going on on the inside? Right? Familiarity can breed contempt, and so when we hear that phrase, love your neighbors yourself. It's repeated. We've heard it. Jesus and Paul say it in the New Testament. Even if you're not a Christian, you're new to RUF, that's probably a phrase you've heard before. But man, think about that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. What was today for all of us? For all of us. Today was a period of time organized by a highly refined calculation of what's best for me. That's what your day was too, most likely. How much are even our good things done in self-interest? College is one of the most challenging environments to begin to consider things like this. I actually think the environment's set up against it because this is the time that it's easiest to focus on self and there are the least consequences for focusing on self. There's the least amount of negative feedback for being selfish here. Uh, If you have a job, if you live in a neighborhood, or if you have a family you live with, you get negative feedback a lot more quickly for selfishness. At college, if you get a little negative feedback for selfishness, guess what you get to do? Start over again really soon. Right? When we consider that summary statement, love your neighbor as yourself, to love someone that way, to love someone the the way we all casually, naturally, all the time love ourselves, feels virtually impossible. So that's our kind of last question is, 
how do we get the power to begin to imagine a life like that? I hope it does feel impossible. That's actually appropriate. Um, and that's a, and, and, but that also doesn't mean that we don't aim for it. Um, but to get there, to get to, all right, well then, how, how is it possible to begin to love people the way we love ourselves? I want to get there by recognizing what inhibits us from beginning to even imagine that life. So let's just take one example, one of kind of the ethical areas already addressed. Why can't we create regular margins of time that are free to be given to people? Why can't we do that? Why does that feel impossible? Here's what it feels like. It feels like you can't afford to, right? It feels like you can't afford to because we all have an image of the future us Somewhere, six months, six years, ten years, fifteen years. The future us that has finally completed all the work we needed to do to be happy and full. Right? And that future us is tyrannizing us. And we don't want anybody to get in the way of us getting to that future us because that's the goal. Future me that's happy. So I've got to chase every opportunity. I've got to actualize my personal plan of personal success to get there. I gotta optimize everything for myself. And what I want, and, and if I get there, then I can rest, then I'll have time, then I'll have money, then I will be okay. And what I want you to consider for a moment is that underneath that, is that is a life of fear. The, the idea if I don't actualize this perfect vision of the ideal me, I might not be okay. Is actually the thing that's preventing us from creating margins of time, for instance. It's fear. It's fear masquerading as reason, actually. And when sin, I mean, when you read the Genesis 1 account, when sin came into the world, it brought fear as our fundamental posture. When you see Adam and Eve first responding to the fact that they're now broken, like sin came in the world, they don't trust God anymore, here's what you don't see. You don't see them immediately become really, really nasty people and be really mean and really violent and really sexually immoral. That's not what happens. The first thing you see happens is they become afraid. The command most often given in Scripture is do not be afraid. When I, I, I saw it in your faces, and I love you, I saw it in your faces when I said, what if we created margins of time that we gave away freely? This room collectively panicked. I saw everybody. None of you hid. I saw all of you. Everybody did it. You felt, I can't afford to. You were afraid of the consequences of doing that. It's fear. Why can't we tell the truth? We're afraid we won't be okay when we engage the consequences of truth-telling. Because our identity is in the opinions of others. And we can advance ourselves as long as we curate those opinions with kind of half-lives and half-truths. We're afraid. We're afraid of a life of integrity will not be reward enough for being a truth-teller. So we'd rather have curated friendships. We're actually dealing with each other's images and not reality. And not have character and be fearful instead of be someone that's full of integrity. We're afraid of the consequences of the truth. Why do we say one thing and do another? Why do we use people? Right? Talking about oppression. We're afraid of missing out on something. 
We oppress because we want for ourselves. We see that people are tools to use for our self-actualization. We're afraid of the con- we're afraid of the consequences of setting other people up for success instead of ourselves. We're afraid of cautious wisdom in judgment, right? Wisdom listens to and considers and gets to know individuals and withholds judgment, lets everybody's story get involved. Partiality and foolish, foolishness is so much easier. It's easy. You just side with the person you stand to benefit with or side with the person who's most like you. Isn't that what we do? Because we're afraid of the consequences of doing otherwise. We're afraid of being honest with ourselves about what's in our hearts. Isn't it easy to see what's wrong with everybody else's hearts? Isn't it great and fun to get a sense of superiority from seeing what's in everybody else's hearts and pointing it out? You know what that's called? That's called contempt. You know why you feel that? Because it's in your heart. You know I know that? Because it's in my heart. But none of us want to admit that that's the main thing that's going on in my heart. Fear is the thing that poisons our humanity, poisons our love, poisons holiness, and prevents and perverts flourishing. So this is the question for like, how then do I try to live a life that way if fear is the major impediment? What gets rid of fear? The verses, the chorus line that you heard when we read this is the answer. You heard it. You shall be holy for I am the Lord your God am holy. Verse 3, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God. Verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Verse 12, I am the Lord. Verse 13, I am the Lord. Verse 15, I am the Lord. Verse 17, I am the Lord. There's some pretty heavy repetition there that's drawing our attention to the text, right? And when you see that word Lord in the Old Testament, and this is actually really important, if you had an English Bible with you, this is not reflected um, in the font we used here. It uses the whole word as an uppercase. Does that sound familiar? Do you all remember seeing that in the the, uh, English Old Testament? What that word represents in Hebrew is a word maybe you've heard before, Yahweh, called the Hebrew tetragrammaton. It's a word that's hard to pronounce, so they just uh, translate it Lord. But that word is actually really significant in Israelites' identity. Because when you see that word Yahweh, that is the name that God gives Himself every time He makes a promise to His people. That He will always take care of them. That he is theirs and they are his. That name for an Israelite is used to remember Yahweh, promise keeping God. That's what it meant. The God who keeps his promises. So it really means it really means I am the promise keeping Yahweh. When you read that, I am the Lord your God. So what does that have to do with dealing with fear and trying to figure out holiness, right? Fear is not eliminated by achievement or gaining power or control. That's what we all believe. Fear is not eliminated by achievement or gaining power or control. Right now, we can list a lot of world leaders who have achieved a ton and have more power and control than anybody we could ever imagine. And we can blatantly see how fearful they are, right? So obviously, achievement, power, and control will not eliminate your fear. And we all think it will, and that's why we're still aiming for it. And the more you believe that, then no matter how much you achieve or how much control and power you get, you'll become more fearful. Fear is not eliminated by achievement, power, or control. That's a lie. Fear is eliminated through attachment. 
Fear is not done away with when you figure out who you are, as if you're going to be free finally when you finish this perfect project of omnicompetence. You're going to have the sure and unchanging, now complete sense of self when you're done. That's delusional. You're not getting there. Fear is not done away with when you figure out who you are. Fear is done away with when you realize whose you are. This is why woven throughout this practical call to costly love, woven throughout it is do not be afraid. That's what I am Yahweh, the promise-keeping God. That is the pastoral impact of it. So don't be afraid. I promise to deliver you from slavery in Egypt, and I did. That's what they thought when they hear that. I promise to bring you to the promised land, and He is. I promise to redeem you and forgive you and restore you and take away sin and guilt and shame and give you life. And that's what Jesus came to do. The only way out of fear is to be assured of God's love for you. And that's actually what Leviticus 1-16 through was about, right? It was all about dealing with the fact that our sin-sick souls are broken and break things. That we've lost our way, we've lost who we are, and the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of this world. And it's not your effort to be successful in the world or your effort to be an improved version of yourself that will mend your heart or enable you to mend the world. It's the love of God in Jesus. It's the grace of God in Jesus. So be generous. Create margins. I'm afraid. Don't worry. The promise-keeping God has you. You're His. Be truthful. I'm afraid. Don't worry. The promise-keeping God has you. You're His. I'm afraid to use my power for others instead of for myself. So don't be afraid. God loves you. The promise-keeping God, you're His. Slow down and be wise in your judgment. God loves you. Calm down. You'll be okay. Search your heart. Do the deep work of learning to genuinely love and deal with the ugly things there. You can. It's okay. The promise-keeping God loves you and has you. I mean, this is the thing we got to wrestle with, right? Is I don't know and you don't know and none of us can ever be sure that you're going to be able to get everything you want. That you're going to become the person that you want to be. That you're going to get the people that like you to like you that you want to like you. That you're going to be able to get things to go in your favor the way you want them to. And as long as optimizing for that is your one thing, you will always be afraid. As long as using all of your energies to get the life you want for yourself is your one thing, you will always be afraid. Because you will never know who you are. Because you don't know that stability and ability to love only come when you know whose you are. The promise-keeping God And every time the voices rise up from the outside or from the inside that say, no, not someone like you. He doesn't love someone like you. You can't be sure because look at what you've done. You're not totally religious. You're not totally right. You're not totally moral. You have these flaws. You have these addictions. Y'all, that's what Leviticus 1 through 16 were for. So that we can say to that voice, no, God has made a way. His love has found its highest and purest expression in His act of sacrifice, His forgiveness, taking away anything that could disqualify me from His love. It's freely given to anybody who takes hold of it by faith. 
so I know that I'm loved. Not because I'm good at being a Christian, but because God is good, and He's the promise-keeping God. 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear when you know you are loved, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected by knowing that they're loved. Um, just a small picture of that. Uh, I read an article about a child psychologist named John Bowlby who studied this thing called attachment parenting. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to figure out what enabled small children to feel safe and confident in the world. And so he examined children in tense and scary and aggressive, insecure and threatening circumstances. And here's what he found equipped children to be strong and confident in the world. It was not competence that equipped them. It was not intelligence that equipped them. It was not teaching, someone teaching them the importance of being relentless or being a winner that equipped them. The children who could navigate difficult situations with confidence and assurance were the children that had meaningful attachment to their parents. They went in the world and they had more strength and less fear the more they attached they were to their parents. Y'all, the key to holiness, the key to the ability to begin to love, the key to going out into an uncertain world, even with our uncertain selves, and live with less fear and live with more love, has everything to do with secure attachment to your Heavenly Father. His love never fails. He is the promise-keeping God. He is the one thing you need. Let's pray.